I hope you will be able to be with us again uh, this evening. Um, Lifelines that we prayed for, we'll be actually interviewing um, some that are there, so you can get to know that ministry uh, better. This morning, I um, and also we're going to be looking at the perplexing um, life of Jephthah, um, the judge in Israel, and if you're not sure why he's perplexing, uh, look up his name in your concordance and read the passages, and then you'll definitely want to come and figure out what are we going to do with that. But that'll be tonight, along with not just for kids and that kind of thing. Um, you know, as the services progress this morning, I've just been, um, it's been a, a really a flood of memories, um, and the, the choir number reminded me of my mom singing, Surely Goodness and Mercy, she'll follow me all the days of my life uh, when I was just a kid. Um, she went to be with the Lord when I was only six. So um, anyway, it was an early introduction to uh, even in the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. And then as Joel talked about uh, day by day and how old the song was when he was a kid, I'm thinking it had been around a good while when I was a kid, which was significantly before Joel was a kid. (laughs) And in fact, I remember in high school singing it as a solo for the voice competition, and there's more story to that, but... um, at any rate, you know, already at that point, I knew what it was to lose a mom and how God had been faithful through that, but I was reflecting how in the decades since then, um, how that song is even more meaningful because you've more and more have lived out uh, what the song talks about. And, you know, one of, the, one of the benefits, there are some downsides to aging, um, but one of the benefits is that you have more and more of a chronicle of God's faithfulness and to His Word, His reliability, His kindness. And our text this morning in John chapter 6 really does underscore the goodness of God. And it's easy for us in a world of pain and calamity and cruelty to forget just how good God is. We'll be looking at the feeding of the 5,000. That's 5,000 men plus women and children, according to the tax, so possibly as many as 15 to 20,000 people fed with one boy's lunch. It's the fourth miracle that John records. It is the only miracle that all four Gospels relate other than Christ's resurrection from the dead. So no wonder it's one of the best-known miracles, and we could well come to the conclusion that it's clearly significant in understanding who Jesus is and what He came to do. In chapter 5 of John, our focus was on the identity of Jesus and His work as expressive of God the Father's will and work. And of course, that was in great distinction to the prevailing religion of the day uh, rather than what was truly godly and truly scriptural. And this miracle gives us further insight into Christ's heart and mission, and therefore into God's heart and purpose. So, begin uh, following me if I, as I read John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. 
And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. So there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And the people saw the sign that he had done. They said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Four things we see about Jesus in these 15 verses. First, we're introduced, not introduced, but we're uh, told to focus on the healing signs by Christ. Secondly, a good portion of the passage is devoted to ministry training by Christ with His disciples. And then in verses 11 through 13, the actual miracle, the creative power of Christ. And then verses 14 and 15, we see the sacrificial mission of Christ highlighted. So, follow with me now as we go looking at these healing signs by Christ. In verse 1, we read that after Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, since we're not talking about Pickens and Spartanburg and Greenville and Greer, uh, we need to kind of get our bearings here. The other side of the Sea of Galilee was the less populated region east of the lake versus west of the lake. And by the time John is writing at the end of the first century, it was also known as the Sea of Tiberias, named after the city of Tiberias, founded by Herod Antipas in honor of Emperor Tiberius. That was the Caesar who was in power um, at the time that John the Baptist began his ministry. In fact, we're told in Luke 3, the 15th year of Tiberius's reign is when John the Baptist began to preach to prepare the way for Jesus. Around A.D. 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed, most of Galilee was destroyed by the Romans. But the city of Tiberias, on, that western, on the western shore of the lake, the more populated area of, of the shore, was spared, and that became the seat of Roman government in the region. So, as John writes, he's going to write with, uh, to those that are familiar with that city, the fact that it's still thriving and uh, kind of getting their bearings. Well, in verse 2, he continues, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Remember that sign is one of the three main words for miracles, and it refers to the message of the miracle. So, I like to, to define a sign this way. It's a miracle with a message, a message from God. 
And the nature of Jesus' miracles, they, they were not for show or for entertainment and, and not even to gain a following, although they did gain for him a following. But, but there was a divine message to his miracles and in particular to his healing of the sick. Think about the kinds of miracles that Jesus did. He healed the sick. He restored those who were handicapped in some way, the blind, the deaf, the lame. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. He provided wine for a wedding to save the bride and groom from public embarrassment and provide for them what would have lasted for months. It was a generous wedding gift. And here, he feeds those fainting from hunger. Jesus' sign miracles displayed God's response to human need. By the time John writes his gospel, his readers have had the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Luke, and Mark, for years. And Matthew records that on this occasion, Jesus healed the sick in Matthew 14. Luke records that he taught them about the kingdom of God in Luke 9. And Mark, that he was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd in Mark 6. So these sign miracles drew a crowd, but that was not the chief purpose of Jesus' supernatural works. It, it will become clear that many of those seeking Jesus were doing so for, for shallow, earthbound reasons. But that said, we don't want to miss the point of what these miracles teach us about God. They were divine signs to show us the heart and purposes of God. The infinite Lord of heaven and earth could easily stay aloof from a world of sinners if that were what He wanted to do. He is the God of justice. An alienation from God because of our sin is exactly what we deserve. But that is not the way God behaves, and that's not the way that God thinks. God is also presents Himself as a God of goodness and steadfast love and of mercy. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He calls us not to forget any of His benefits. In fact, every day, think about it, God feeds the entire world along with the animals and humans in it. So, so true to His character, He shows compassion on us. He's not just a God far away, way up there. He is the God who is near. His very name communicates His heart for relationship. His covenant name, Yahweh, means He is. It testifies not just to His existence, but also to His presence. He is God with us. And nowhere is that more clear than in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus has displayed God's heart toward us. Do not think God sits on His high throne with no thought of you and no care for you and no power to do anything about your broken life. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the God that Jesus displays in miracles like this. Further, Jesus' miracles display not only His power but, but also His willingness to heal every sort of disease and restore every form of brokenness that mars our lives. These are all results, ultimately, of the curse on our sin. We, we live in a broken, diseased world. This is exactly the point that Matthew makes when he quotes from Isaiah 53, 
to explain why Jesus healed and delivered people the way that He did. In Matthew 8, Matthew explains, that evening they brought to Him many who were oppressed by demons, and He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Why? This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Here is a God who has the power to remove every illness, every disease. Here is a God who takes on human form and experiences the very things with which we suffer. So it is not wishful dreaming to think that someday there will be no more disease, pain, death, sorrow, or tears. It is a written promise of God that these things will be no more. And Jesus Himself in His earthly ministry proved that He has both the power and the will to remove these things. So we want to get our view of God where it needs to be, because when we hit those hard stretches in life, sometimes it confuses us as to who God actually is. How could the conviction that God's heart is full of compassion toward you and other suffering people actually change your outlook on life? You know, we, we have to be careful about how we talk to ourselves. It's very easy to talk to yourself in lies, to keep lying to yourself about the way life is. Now, the Bible's very realistic about how hard things are, but, but don't let those blind you to how good God is in the midst of a difficult world. And how could knowing that one day all the suffering will be gone because of the proven power of Jesus help you cope with your difficulties now? You know, pain, pain is bearable if you know it's temporary. Well, it's temporary. If you're trusting in Jesus, it is temporary. And are there ways you think about God that do not match what Jesus reveals about Him here? I would, I would encourage you, as we think about this this morning, to, to take what we learn and, then, and hold it up to how you generally think about God and let it correct and align your thinking and your heart with the way of God's actual character and God's actual heart. Second thing we see is ministry training by Christ. There's actually the bulk of the passage is devoted to this. We read in verse 3, Jesus went up to, on a mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. So as he, you know, they're, they're going to a more secluded place. They're on the less populated side of the lake. He, it's clearly a time that he wants to train his disciples, and here comes this crowd. I mean, if three's a crowd, you know, 5,000 plus women and children, that's, I don't know what you call that, a mega crowd, I guess. Now, the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand, and lifting up his eyes then and seeing a, that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, as they're watching these people making their way toward them as well, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? I mean, why would you even ask the question? I'm, I'm sure Philip's going like, why are you even asking me that? Be, I mean, because there's clearly nothing we can do about this. 
And, and he says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And so Jesus said, well, you're right. Let's call it all off, tell them to go home. No, he doesn't say that. He says, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. It was springtime, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Now, much of this account is turning attention to the disciples in this situation. So, this account is not just about Jesus' miracle. This is about how Jesus works with his disciples. Jesus was there to train his disciples for the ministry that they would shoulder when he was gone, and this was going to be key for them. His question to Philip underscores the human impossibility of supplying food for so large a crowd in such a desolate place. There was not enough money to buy it. It would take at least 200 days' wages just for them to have a little bit, nor was there time to gather so much food together. And that anyone in a nearby town would have this much food on hand, oh yes, the day-old bakery just ha- happens to have enough food for fifteen to 20,000 people. No. Impossible, right? And Andrew finds this one boy's lunch, and he freely confesses it's nothing compared to what is needed. But Jesus goes ahead and has them sit on the ground. It was Passover season in the spring when there would still be grass in this region of the world. And we're told in the synoptics that they sat down in groups of roughly 50, which would make it possible to count how many were there and also easier to distribute food among them. Now, when Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fish, he has the disciples distribute the food to the crowd. This is very clear in the synoptics. They fed the crowd, but he supplied the food. And that is the way ministry works. No human being or group or church, for that matter, is sufficient to give the world what it needs. We merely pass on what Jesus has supplied. We proclaim the good news of what God has done to make salvation possible, not good advice about what people must do. Paul says it this way to the Corinthian believers who tended to follow their culture in being followers of men, of idolizing human leaders. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, what then is Apollos, what is Paul, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So, neither is he who plants nor he who waters anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now, do you need to plant? Yes. Do you need to water? Yes. And throw in weeding and the other kinds of things. But the only reason that's worth anything is that God gives life and causes the seed to sprout and grow. If that weren't happening, all the planting and watering in the world would be worthless. And and the things that we do together as human beings would be worthless apart from the actual power of God. It's it's not something human beings are doing and creating here. So, why did the disciples, who clearly are overwhelmed by the magnitude of the need, why did they get to minister in this extraordinary way? How is it they tapped into getting to distribute food to so many people and, and be part of this miracle? Merely by obeying 
what Jesus told them to do. He did the miracle. They just passed it on. When he said, had the crowd sit down, they, they had the crowd sit down. They didn't go like, why would you have the crowd sit down? They need to go home. Okay? Now, St. This, this kind of thing happens throughout church history. It's what happened on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 turned to Christ in one day. It was beyond what the, any of the disciples could have imagined that God would do. And throughout history, there have been periodic ingatherings of souls where, where, where hearts were suddenly opened to trusting Jesus, numbering in the tens and hundreds and thousands, even into the millions the Reformation, the First and Second Great Awakening, the revivals that swept our own country in 1920s, 1970s. This is why Jesus said to the disciples, wait till the Spirit comes and empowers you before you go on mission. You shall receive power. And when they did their miracles, they didn't take credit to themselves. They said, uh-uh, this is the power of Jesus at work. Today we may think, that awakenings are the stuff of ancient history never to be experienced again. But the course of church history would teach us otherwise. Indeed, the end of the age will be punctuated by a worldwide awakening with converts from every nation, kindred, and tongue, according to the book of Revelation. We would do well to be praying every day that the Lord of harvest would send another great awakening to our own nation. It is the only thing that can save us. Nothing less can turn back the prevailing cult of self-deification and sexual obsession, enshrining the slaughter of innocent children and subjugating our children and our culture, from our entertainment to our schools to the very halls of government. A wicked culture is ripe for judgment but it's not only ripe for judgment, it is ripe for revival from God. In fact, that is the context in which every revival in human history has ever happened. But only God can do it. So let us, however, like the disciples, pray for it. Let us prepare for it. Just the disciples did on that amazing day, having the people sit down before the amazing happened. And let us obey our Lord's command to take the gospel to every created being and every ethnicity. And we need to stop worrying about the impossibility of it because God has given us this to do. So what if, what if you were to commit to praying daily for God to do the impossible again and send another great awakening. Do you think that would be a worthy prayer request for you every single day? I think it would. I think our problem is we, if we're honest, we just don't believe it, it's going to happen. Well, we're not going to do it, that's for sure. And whoever we elect to Congress or the presidency or appoint the Supreme Court's not going to do it. God will have to do it. And then when and where can you share the good news and with whom can you be sharing it? 
I mean, if you're going to pray for this, you might as well be part of it. And what impossible things should you prepare for as the disciples when they obeyed Jesus' directives? In other words, what, I, what I'm asking us to do is to stop living just in the realm of what human beings can do and start thinking about what God can do in impossible situations and start preparing that way and start obeying God in light of that. The third thing that we see is the actual miracle, the creative power of Christ. In verse 11, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, they, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. I guess this is a proof text, by the way, if you're one that doesn't ever eat leftovers, that Jesus doesn't agree with you. Okay, so moms, I would encourage you to use this with your fussy kids, or your fussy husband for that matter. Okay, so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So think about the miracles of Jesus. When he, when he healed people, what he was doing was mending and restoring what was broken and diseased. When he fed the 5,000 plus, the 15 to 20,000, he was not just renewing what was broken. He was creating what didn't exist before. It's, it's essentially what God did at creation. He spoke and it was done. Power equals the amount of work divided by the time it takes to do it. And Jesus, Jesus did this astounding miracle with no fanfare, though thousands of people experienced the benefit of it. He prayed. He broke the bread and the fish. He distributed the food to the disciples to pass out to the people. Nothing extraordinary about that. Nothing zowie about that. But in that understated process, five barley loaves and two fish became enough to feed 15 to 20,000 people. Jesus makes it look simple because for God it is. Nothing is too hard for God. Similar to the first miracle that John records, when Jesus turned water, that was water for purification, into the finest wine. The natural processes require significant time and labor for water to pass through the vine to eventually turn into wine. Natural processes require a lot of time and labor to produce enough bread and fish to feed such a large crowd of hungry people. Jesus did it in minutes. It was the distribution and the eating that took the time. Doing the impossible is God's stock and trade. Nothing is too hard for him. The gospel itself rests on this premise. God has displayed his power to create good things out of nothing over and over again. That there are think about it, that there are any born-again believers on the planet today is because of this creative power. This is the way the apostles explain how sinners by birth and by choice whose will is set on disobeying God, this is how they explain how people can suddenly be converted and changed from the inside out. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and then entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The gospel is that there, even though there's this, this impenetrable barrier between you and God, God has reached through that barrier to reconcile sinners to himself through Jesus. So when, when everyone had eaten, Jesus had his disciples gather the fragments that nothing should be wasted. And they gathered far more than what they started with. When you minister to others in Christ's name, you may feel you have little to offer and that there's too much to pay. But when it's all said and done, you will end up with more than what you started with because nothing done for Jesus is wasted. It's a fact keeps on going in ways you can't control or imagine even from one generation to another, reaching into eternity itself. Nothing you give up or give out for Jesus is ultimately lost. I mean, Jesus says this, doesn't he? And he says, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And, and, and the natural human response is, that costs too much. I can't do that. I'll be giving up too much. And he says, he that loses his life for my sake finds it. I will guarantee you there's not one saint that has transitioned to heaven that regrets one second or one dime or one bit of energy expended for the sake of Jesus Christ or one bit of suffering for the kingdom. Not one. Because Jesus makes it worth it. There's, there'd be more at the end than there was at the beginning. And it's, it's important for us to remember this because we get jaded. We get cynical. We go through hard things and we try to serve Jesus here uh, on this, this broken planet and lots of things go wrong and we're not, we find out we're not as good as we thought we were and, and, and all kinds of, of difficulties and, and we start to, to focus on all of that and we forget, we forget that God is at work and God is doing things far beyond what we can even imagine. And that, that the problems are temporary. And that the joy is eternal. So what about your life? What about your life? Needs the creative power of God to make you new again. I'm talking like something out of nothing kind of intervention from God. It might be a besetting sin. It might be a marriage that you, you believe is just hopelessly damaged, that there's no, no recovering it, and you're just biding your time. It might be the loss of hope that the joy of your salvation can ever be yours again. You do understand that the God that you worship is the creator God who makes things new. And if you want proof of that, it would be good to just observe what is going on around you. Where do you see God at work in non-flashy ways 
that are, that are nonetheless evidence of his love and power. I mean, and th- these are so, there are so many common ways that we don't even notice them. Just like the very fact that you woke up this morning, you didn't tell yourself to breathe and your heart to beat all night long, and yet somehow you woke up alive. There are people that die in their sleep, you know. And most of you, if not all of you, are not worried about you'll have good food to eat today. And you're not worried about whether the sun's going to come up or whether the seasons are going to go through their normal cadence. And, and the rain came last night and, and watered your entire yard and you didn't have to pay a dime for it. God does good stuff all the time, if you would just notice. And so let me encourage you to do this. What, what works of God can you be praising God for each, for each day? Now let's go back to the marriage thing, okay? It, if you're not noticing the good things your spouse does and, and appreciative of them, and if it never comes out of your mouth, your gratitude for that, your admiration, your affection, if that, if that never happens, believe me, the way you feel toward your spouse is not going to be right. And the way your spouse feels toward you isn't going to be right. How do you expect, how do you expect your attitude to God to be right if, if all you do is grumble to him while you ignore all the good things that he does. I mean, think about the relationship you have. What if you had a person that you're close to, and you do all kinds of good things for them all the time, but all they do is harp on the things that your weaknesses and the things that you don't do right, or, or the things that, that they don't have. Instead of looking at what they have, they, they grouse about what they don't have all the time. That gets old really fast. But it's not just that it gets old. It does damage to That person is doing damage to himself or herself we would do well to make it a point to praise God every day for the good that we see because he is good. And, and he is good even, I'm convinced of this, he is, he is good beyond what we can even imagine because we haven't yet tasted the full measure of it. Number four, we see the sacrificial mission of Christ. In verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. What are they talking about? Well, God provided manna in the wilderness for the Israelites during the days of Moses. So, Jesus feeding this vast crowd reminded them of Moses and of Moses' promise that there was coming a prophet like himself to whom the people would listen. It's recorded in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, that Sinai, on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord. It scared them too much, my God, and see this great fire anymore, lest I die. The Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. He was talking about Jesus. In Acts 7, Stephen refers to the same passage in his sermon, calling his listeners to stop resisting God. They refused Stephen's appeal, and instead they stoned him to death. Later in our passage, 
Jesus will say, our, the, the people will say to Jesus, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So we know they were thinking about this. And Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Not only is he saying that it was God that supplied the manna, he's saying that God is supplying the bread of life. He's supplying the Savior myself. These words are part of his discourse on his being the bread of life, meaning life far beyond just satisfying physical hunger, just as the water he offered to the woman of Samaria quenched a thirst far greater than physical thirst. They were thinking, though, in political and economic terms, not spiritual. And so we read in verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. His interest is not in being a king, but in being a savior. He came into the world to give up himself as a sacrifice, to bring life to a sin-cursed, dying race. It was not the time to reign as king, but to die as a lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We were told in an earlier verse that it was Passover season. For the death angel to pass over a family, the unblemished lamb had to be slain and its blood applied to the doorpost of that home. Jesus is the fulfillment of that lamb, heading to the cross to pour out his lifeblood to set us free from our sin and make us eternal citizens of an eternal kingdom. The crown would come later. So what temporal earthbound goals interfere with your denying yourself to take up your cross and follow Jesus? And what are you doing to keep from getting sidetracked from pursuing the mission Christ has given his followers? It's a cross-bearing time. The crown will come. If you want to understand God, you have to look at Jesus. And when you see how he responded to human need, when you see how he trained his followers to participate in meeting those needs and how easily he brought something out of nothing and how committed he was to saving sinners through the sacrifice of himself, you are seeing God revealed for who he really is. We see in this passage Jesus healing signs, his ministry training, his creative power, his sacrificial mission. What a Savior. And what a God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it sheds light into our souls to understand who you are and who Jesus is and what we need. So, God, may we trust in him and may we serve him as his faithful disciples. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.